0: The date, uh, May 29th, uh, 2021, Uh, Audrey and I had just spent about 15 hours traveling in airports uh, from Indianapolis uh, to Dallas and then on to Maui uh, to participate in a marriage enrichment retreat uh, here as we were about a year into COVID. And uh, we left early that morning and because of the hour difference, it was getting late in the afternoon uh, and we were tired, we were exhausted. but we 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 deplaned. We we made it to our airport. We walked outside to the beauty and the sun and the heat of, of Hawaii, and and then while we're there, we begin having to queue for transportation to our resort, uh, which seems easy enough. But keep in mind we are about a year into the COVID 19 pandemic. Uh, At that time, Hawaii had some of the strictest uh, rules and restrictions in the country. They had not permitted Uber and Lyft and other rideshare services to resume offering um, their services. The only options to get from the airport to our hotel about 30, 45 minutes away, depending on, on traffic, was either to rent a car, which we had priced in the months leading up to going, and that was cost prohibitive. Uh, if you remember, COVID-19, rental car companies sold their cars, and so cars were at a premium. We're talking 1000 to $1,200 for five days of rental, and like that wasn't gonna happen. Uh, the second option was to rent a private car with a private driver. That also was cost prohibitive. And so the only option was to take a taxi from the airport to the hotel. And guess what? There were a whole lot of people opting for the taxi. And so we got in the line, and it was a long line, and the attendant made her way to us, taking everyone's name, their destination down to make sure everyone got their taxi in an orderly way. And when she came to us, she asked us for our resort, and we told her the name. And she said, it's probably going to be 45 minutes, an hour, maybe longer. And, And so Audrey got in her bag and got out some sunscreen, and I put it on my slightly bald head and face and she put it on her face and neck and we prepared what we thought was going to be a really long wait 10 minutes later uh, the attendant comes up to us and she said hey there's actually a another couple going to the same resort as yours Uh, if you'd like to jump in with them they're okay with other people riding with them which really surprised her surprised us Because again, May of 2021, people were opting for their own private taxi. They didn't want to share a vehicle with someone, risk being infected. And and so this couple said, hey, let them ride with us. And so what was supposed to be a 45-minute or an hour-long wait turned into just 10 minutes. And we made our way to the the minivan taxi. And uh, the couple loaded their stuff in. And we loaded our stuff in. And to our surprise, even though it was their taxi, they took the seats in the back of the van. They let us have the captain's chairs. And we began our ride to our resort. And along the way, we made small talk. Audrey's really good at um, making connections with people. And so we learned their names were Skylar and Kim. They homeschooled. They were from Montana. And uh, as the conversation went on, we we learned that... um, They had a huge heart for disciples and disciple-making, and they were going to the hotel for the same retreat and conference that we were. So the conversation just kind of took off, and along the way, uh, Audrey just asked, are are you helping lead worship at this event? And and the woman said, yes, yes, we are. And that's when we began to learn that we weren't just riding with any family. Uh, We were riding with Skylar and Kim Walker-Smith. Um, some of you who are into worship music and you follow the latest albums coming out, Kim Walker-Smith is a part of the worship collaboration called Jesus Culture. Uh, her and her husband Skylar have played. They've played all over the world. They've helped write songs and perform songs with Bethel. Uh, they're, they're, they're just doing incredible things on the worship music scene. And here they were offering us their taxi, moving to the back of the taxi, no, no sense of pretense. Uh, just, just treating us uh, as equals, as fellow human beings, and we saw demonstrated in them what I would consider the key to an honest and a life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. I'll take you even further back uh, to the summer of 1995. Uh, I was one of about 30 to 40 campers at Hilltop Christian Camp. It was high school week of church camp after my junior year of high school. uh, The camp director, we used to call him a dean back in that day, uh, his name was Tom. And I just learned, actually, I I saw Tom for the first time in uh, close to 25 years, 26 years, Uh, just three months ago at a conference I was at on the southwest side of Indy. And I reminded Tom of the week that he had kind of directed that I was a part of after my junior year of high school. And he said that actually that week he wasn't even supposed to be there. The camp was in dire need. They had no one to lead that week of camp. And so he stepped in at the last minute and he led the 30 or 40 of us in this great camp experience. And the very first night of camp, Tom shared with the whole group, they said, he said, hey, you're going to have to divide up into groups. There are going to be electives every afternoon. You have three to choose from. You can be in worship music, drama, or preaching. And the goal was that we would be in those each afternoon throughout the week. And then what we did in those electives would determine our chapel service for that Friday evening, the final worship experience of camp. And so I don't sing. Uh, I don't play instruments. Uh, I'm not good at acting, and so that left me really one option, and that was preaching, although I didn't really want to do it. And so I, me, I, me, I don't know, me and another kid named Kyle we were the only ones in the preaching uh, elective. And so for five days, uh, this man named Tom taught us a little bit about preaching, helped us write a small sermon, about 10 minutes long, that then uh, both of us delivered Friday night during our worship experience. So I get home from camp, and I'm telling my preacher, whose name is also Tom, about the Tom that led our week at camp, and he said, oh, really? That's Tom Ellsworth. And I said, well, I don't know who Tom Ellsworth is. He didn't tell us who he was. Like, you know, he's the, he's the lead pastor at Sherwood Oaks Christian Church in Bloomington, Indiana. It's one of the fastest growing churches in Indiana, and they're doing incredible things. And I remember thinking, Tom didn't mention any of that to us. He was there, uh, willing to help a bunch of high school students encounter Jesus, And again, that's where I saw the key to an honest and life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. I'll take you back to 2009. Uh, TCM is one of our global impact partners here at Lebanon Christian Church. And my first exposure to TCM came in 2009. TCM is an organization that's dedicated to developing disciple makers and training disciple makers all around the world. Uh, They started primarily emphasizing Eastern Europe Uh, because those countries had been affected uh, by communism and it was hard to get the gospel and to train disciple makers in those countries. And so they found this piece of property in the Eastern part of Austria and they started bringing students there uh, when the Iron Curtain fell and they started training them. Well, that's still one of their main training centers. And so we can take trips over. Some people in our church have been over on trips with me to serve at House Edelweiss in the Eastern part of Austria. So I'm there for the first time in 2009. Um, I I see as I'm cleaning up tables and setting tables and doing dishes myself, I, I see this group of people gathered around the dishwashing, uh, dish-drying table. A number of people, some look like they're smart, some look like they're not, and, uh, and, and they're gathered together, drying dishes, putting them away, and I noticed this man who's about this tall. Uh, I figured he was a student. Um, over the next week, he would sit at my table, he would eat with me, uh, he would ask questions of my life, I would ask questions of his life, when we took a trip to Vienna and then on another day to Baden, uh, he would jump in the back of the bus, not, not wanting the front seat, not wanting the front seats, uh, which is important to me because I get car sick. And so having someone who's willing to jump in the back is always a helpful thing. And so this man, Mago, just would dr- jump in the back seat. Uh, he would wash dishes. He would dry dishes. He would eat at the table with us. And again, no hint of pretense, But about midway through that session, we were there for 17 days, I learned that Mago was one of the professors. Not only was Mago a professor, but uh, Mago was one of the lead pastors, one of the fastest growing churches in Eastern Europe, 3D Church in Estonia. I learned that Mago chairs the Ethics Council for the whole country of Estonia. He's had his hands in shaping policies that have completely changed the trajectory of the value of human life, including the unborn child in his country. And yet he never shared those things at the dinner table. He just treated me like I was as equal to him. He just acted like a normal man and didn't ask for favors, didn't make me serve him, didn't make us wash his dishes. And again, that's where I saw someone demonstrate the key to an honest and life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. There's one more story I want to share with you, uh, but this story is found in Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, Barnabas and Paul demonstrate the very same character trait that's essential to an honest and life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, your Bible app, find Acts chapter 14. We're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 18. Um, you'll get some of the rest of that account next week, but in Acts chapter 14, uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. What brings them to Lystra is somewhat unique. Uh, I have a map that should uh, you should be able to see behind me um, on the right. Uh, you see the red dot. That's the modern Google Maps image of Turkey, and if you go just to the southeast, that's where the ancient city of Lystra would have been. And then on the left, uh, you see the map from a study Bible of that area in Paul's day. Lystra was one of three cities, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, that were the primary cities in the province of Galatia. Uh, You probably know that there's a letter in your New Testament from Paul to the Galatians as he addresses these early believers. Well, in Iconium, the account that precedes our section, uh, Paul and Barnabas are there. They're proclaiming who Jesus is. They're sharing with them the good news, the gospel, as we would say and they're they're met with mixed results. People are eager, some people respond, but other people get angry and the Gentiles and Jews kind of stir a few up and they they want to stone Paul and Barnabas and so they leave for Lystra. And I'm not sure anything could have prepared them for what happened at Lystra. Uh, Check this out. Verse eight. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. You go from being chased out of Iconium, people wanna stone you, and now you find yourself in Lystra and they call you gods and wanna sacrifice animals to you. And in the response of Paul and Barnabas we see the key to an honest and transforming, life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. In verses 8 through 10, we see that Paul is preaching. Paul is proclaiming. Paul is telling them who Jesus is. He looks out into the crowd, and he sees a man who is lame listening intently The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God prompts him, brings him the discernment that that man has the faith to be healed. And so Paul looks out over the crowd and he finds the lame man's eyes and he says, get up, walk. And the man stands up, jumps up, and he walks and as you can imagine, it creates quite a stir. We've already seen this before. We've seen this in Jesus' life. As people are healed, news spreads about him throughout the, the area. We saw this in Peter and John in uh, Acts chapter 4, when they healed the man at the gate called beautiful. Again, it stirred the crowd then, and it stirs the crowd now. People are captivated. Here's a man, Luke tells us, that has been lame since birth. The crowd knew this man's story. They knew that he had been unable to walk. And now suddenly, he jumps up and he can walk, and they begin thinking things. Verses 11 through 13 tell us that they they think that they are gods. In fact, they think that Zeus and Hermes have disguised themselves in human form and are, are there in their midst. These are pagan people. They worship the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. They believe that Zeus is the top god in their in their in their in their pantheon. They they believe that Hermes is, is pretty close as the messenger god. And so it must be their gods coming and working these miracles among them. It's likely that Paul and Barnabas didn't understand the Laconian language. But they did begin to understand the actions of the people. The people were excited. They're shouting, and then suddenly the priest of Zeus, whose temple is outside the city, starts bringing bulls and wreaths to the gates of the city for a sacrifice. We might ask the question, why? Why would the people of Lystra believe that the healing of a lame man is evidence that their gods, Zeus and Hermes, are among them? Well, if you know the story of those in Lystra, and I don't expect you to know that, but we know from extra biblical resources, resources outside of scripture that have been uncovered, that the people in Lystra um, had a legend. A legend that they would tell to their children at bedtime. They would speak with each other about in pubs. And that legend goes like this, that there was a time in their history when Zeus and Hermes disguised themselves in human form. They came to the city of Lystra, and they went to home after home knocking on the doors, and no one would let them in. They came to the final, the final home in the city of Lystra, a, a modest home. A poor man and his wife lived there, and they knocked on the door, and that man and his wife invited them in. And as their legend goes, that man and his wife became a priest and priestess of Zeus. Their home was transformed in an ornate temple But Zeus and Hermes left Lystra vowing never to return because of the lack of hospitality in that city. And so imagine that for generations you have retold this story. Imagine living in a culture where your religion is based upon the works you do to earn the favor of your God. And this is part of your story. The gods will never wanna come back here. We made mistakes in our past, they'll never care for us again. And then suddenly, as you're hearing this man speak with great skill, a man among you is healed, they began to think, wait a second, maybe our fortunes are changing. Maybe Zeus and Hermes have visited us again. Maybe the history of Lister will be rewritten. And so they don't want to miss the opportunity to salvage the occasion, and so they throw a great celebration and, and what is Paul and Barnabas' response? When they hear it, they tear their clothes, which is a sign of grief and protest against what's happening. And it says that they rush out, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Paul and Barnabas refuse to accept the glory and the praise that's coming their way. They say the whole reason we are here is because you're worshiping these worthless idols. They're there to convince them that Zeus and Hermes and the rest of their gods are not real. There's only one true living God. And so they're there to help turn their hearts to the one who made them. And yet they're wanting to honor them as gods. this can't happen. They're tearing their clothes in grief. Guys, you have to stop this. We are only humans too. Paul and Barnabas understand who they are in light of who God is. And they know that they're not worthy of the praise. They're not better than other people. And what we see them demonstrate is the same character trait that Skylar and Kim demonstrated, that Tom demonstrated, that Mago demonstrated, the same key to an honest and life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. What is it? What is that character trait that Skylar and Kim and Tom and Mago and Paul and Barnabas exhibit? Humility. Humility. Humility is the right understanding of who we are only in view of who God is and what God has done. Humility means to bring ourselves low. It's it's recognizing that we are mere humans, broken people in need of God's grace, men and women saved only by the grace of God not by our own works so that no man can boast. We are not great. We're not worthy of sacrifices. We're not worthy of the honor and the praise of men. We are just men and women equipped by God for the things that we are doing. That's humility. Humility is a right understanding of self. It's not self-deprecation. It's not low self-esteem. It's not putting ourselves down. It's recognizing that I am only because he is. And that's the character trait that Skylar and Kim and Tom and Mago and Paul and Barnabas exhibit. They're like, you can't honor us as gods. We are not. Like, we are just his messengers. We're here to proclaim to you the good news about the living God. That's who you need. They were humble. Isn't it interesting that of all the things Jesus declares about himself, one of them is that he is humble. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The same word that Jesus used to describe himself there is the word that Paul used to describe in Philippians chapter two. The same word that he will challenge the Philippians with earlier in Philippians chapter two. The same word that he will challenge the Ephesians with in Ephesians chapter four. His idea of of a right understanding of ourselves as we recognize the greatness of God of who he is and what he's done. Jesus was humble. Jesus is humble. In our quest to pursue Jesus, which is the theme of this series, our quest is to become like him. And if Jesus is humble, we should be striving to be characterized by humility ourselves, that we would be humble as he is humble. When Jesus invites his disciples to follow him, he issues a two-word commandment in the Gospels. Do you remember what it is? Follow what? Follow me. We know again from studying history outside of scripture that that two word commandment was uttered by rabbi after rabbi after rabbi, not just Jesus. It was an invitation not just to go where the rabbi was going, but it was an invitation to come and to learn from him as his life would be open to them. The, The goal of follow me was that you would not only learn from the rabbi, but grow to become like the rabbi. That you would learn what they know, but live like they were living as well. To become like them. That you would talk like them. That you would think like them. That you would act as they are acting. That's the invitation to follow me. That's what Jesus invites his disciples to do. Come live like me. That's our invitation as disciples. If you're going to follow King Jesus, the goal is to live like him. He was humble as we pursue him to make this intentional, decisive action to become like him. It means that we should be men and women who are shaped more and more by humility. One of those men that Jesus would call John, the brother of James, a fisherman, would write this of Jesus in his letter, 1 John chapter two, verse six. He says, anyone who claims to live in Jesus must walk as he did, must live as he did. When we want to follow Jesus, pursue Jesus, it means living like him. Jesus was humble. Will we be people of humility? It shouldn't surprise us that Paul models this, not just in Acts. We see it in Paul's letters. You can look to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. Paul says, I am the least of all the apostles. Paul's not clamoring for greatness. We can see it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, I am the least of all of the servants. We can see it in 1 Timothy 1:15, when Paul says that I am foremost among sinners. Like, I am the worst of sinners. We can see it in his letter to the Philippians uh, chapter 3. We looked at this several weeks ago. We want, when we launch this series, he, he names all the things that he could claim, being a Pharisee and who taught him and, and how zealous he was for the law. But all of those are rubbish. All those are trash compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus and becoming like him. Humility. It shouldn't surprise us then that Paul, who says, follow me as I follow the example of Christ, would then champion humility to the people who he served. In, in, in Ephesians chapter four, verse two. Here's what Paul writes to the Ephesian believers. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Isn't it interesting that Paul pairs together in the first part of verse two, the very same things that Jesus declares of himself. Be completely humble and gentle. Or look at what he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing looking out for yourself above others. Rather, in humility, the right understanding of yourself, being brought low because of who God is and what he's done. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you, to the interests of the others. Paul encourages in disciples then, just as we need to be encouraged now, that humility is the key that unlocks a life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. When you read um, philosophers of the Greco-Roman world men like Philo or Plato or Aristotle, they will tell you that humility is a virtue that you don't want to characterize your life. Humility is something you don't strive for. The goal is that you you stand out, that you help people see how great you are. That that, that was the way of the Greco-Roman world. But as is the case with so many things of Jesus, he turns things upside down, doesn't he? And what is pushed away, what is cast aside, what is diminished in the eyes of the world is actually elevated in the lives of our king. And so Jesus is humble and Paul champions the humility of Christ in us. The world hasn't changed a whole lot, has it? If we're honest, humility is still not a prized virtue. In our world of selfies, in our world of filters, where it's all about making ourselves look better than we are. In our world of personal branding, like that has taken off. There are people that are, just, they excel and their whole career is in helping you brand yourself so you look as good as possible. Uh, When when our son was going off to college last year, we were encouraged by someone to seek out um, a a lady. She goes by scholarship girl. It's a woman who's dedicated kind of her career to helping uh, you pay her a fee. She helps you find a bunch of scholarships for your kids. And uh, the biggest part of the conversation we had with her is she was encouraging uh, our youngest that he needed to come up with a way of branding himself to stand out to get these scholarships. So much of the way of our world is make yourself known, make yourself stand out, let people see how great you are. Posture yourself. And yet what's the way of King Jesus? Humble yourselves. And when we humble ourselves, then God figures out when we're exalted. We recognize that we are not better than others, but we are only by the grace of God. And it's humility that unlocks the character of Jesus in us. And we have spent the last several weeks looking at what it means to pursue Jesus. We've seen how important the Bible is to that, prayer is to that, service is to that, and generosity is to that. But what unlocks all of those? It's humility. It's humility that drives me to the word of God and says, God, I need your direction it's humility that, that drives you to not only learn about him, but say, God, these are your words. And whether I agree with them, whether they're popular, whether our society goes along with them or not, that, that I have to obey them. They are your truth. Humility says, you know better than I do, God, even when it doesn't make sense. Humility drives us to our knees in prayer. When we look at our life, we look at our situations, we look at our health, we look at our world, and we say, I can't figure this out. God, I need you and so humbly we come before him. God, I am dependent upon you. We pray to him, we trust him with our lives and with our worries and with our anxieties. Humility drops us to our knees in service because in humility we see that the lame man at the back of the crowd, he matters just as much to God as the people at the front. And so we see them and we serve them and we come alongside them. Humility enables us to, to live in, in Boone County and, and hear stories of, of people overdosing on heroin and needing Narcan and, and not coming to the place where we think that we are better than them, but we are fellow human beings on a journey and we can count it only the grace of God that has kept us from those things or saved us from those things. We are not better, we are broken people saved by an amazing God. Humility spurs on our generosity because you recognize that what's in our account is not ours, it's only given to us, either by the talents or the, the, uh, uh, the talents that God has given us, the abilities he's given us, or the generosity of other people that God has inspired in their hearts. Our resources are not our own, they come from him. Humility unlocks that. Will you and I be men and women who are humble, who have this right understanding of ourselves in light of who God is and what he's done, that enables us to unlock this life-transforming pursuit of Jesus. What would change in your schools if we lived humble lives? Would there be kids that are cast aside because they don't wear the North Face jacket or the right Air Force Ones? Would Would there be students who are included when other people push them to the fringes because of how they smell or the place they come from? what would change in our neighborhoods and how we treat the person who doesn't keep their yard the way our homeowners association said they should? Does it change how we treat people in our county who believe that there should be a leap development and those who say there shouldn't? Would humility allow us to not see that we're better than but come alongside of? But we allow humility to unlock the life-transforming pursuit of Jesus in us and through us and you think how Craig how how do I become more humble and I'll just give you a few quick pointers Uh, one would be to prioritize praise in your life praise to God Um, sometimes we think we're better than we are because we forget how great he is And one of the first anecdotes to that is remembering how great he is. And if you need help with that, i turn to Job chapter 38 or Job chapter 39. I would just let God put you in your place like he put Job in his place. Who tells the seas how far they can go? Who gives the lion his roar? Job, is it you? Uh, Nope. All right. That should put us in our place. Job 38 and 39. Give praise to other people. Recognize the good things happening in other people's lives, and don't clamor for the praise yourself. Confess. Confess your brokenness. I think of that story of of Peter coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive the one who sins against me? Is it seven times, Jesus? No, Peter, try 70 times, seven. And Jesus is like, really? And Jesus tells Peter a story. He tells a story about an unmerciful servant who has his debts canceled. And even as his debts were canceled, goes to people with much less debt and throws them in prison and holds them accountable. And Jesus says, part of us having merciful hearts is remembering how much God has forgiven us of. You wanna know a path to humility? It's not just praising God and praising others, but it's recognizing and, and, and coming face to face with your own brokenness. When I am honest about the things that I have done and how God has forgiven me, it's really hard to look at you and say that I'm better than you because I'm a mess and you're a mess and we're only by the grace of God. Praise, confession, and then service. Serve somebody. Go to your knees, help somebody. Clean a toilet, rake some leaves, clean out a gutter, Help somebody in the grocery store, serve somebody and see how God helps foster humility in your heart. And perhaps even be reminded of this. When Micah is teaching the post-exile people of God, God is speaking through Micah. God speaks to the messenger and he says, and what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. People who pursue Jesus are characterized by humility, and they work to foster humility in their lives. And by the way, if you don't know Jesus, um, again, he's the most humble person to ever live, and he reigns with God now. And Paul gives us this beautiful picture even after he encourages humility in the lives of the Philippian believers. He gives the example of Jesus. He says this in Philippians chapter 2 verse five. In your relationships with one another, keep in mind this follows right after telling them to be humble. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a legend that travels around Lystra about the time Zeus and Hermes became humans, but it's just a legend. But there's a story about a time around the turn of BC to AD, about a time when God became man and took on human flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that story is real, it's the story of Jesus. He took on human flesh and he humbled himself for you and for me, that by trusting in him, we might live forevermore. If you need to know more about this Jesus, we would love to converse with you. I'm available at the front of the room following our worship experience. You can email us, connect at You can scan the QR codes in our building that say let's connect. You can fill out a physical connection card and put it in the boxes. But we would love to help you meet this God who humbled himself in Jesus and became obedient to death, even death on the cross for you and for me. And may we be men and women who live humble lives as well. Let's pray. God, thank you. God, I thank you for the example of uh, Skylar and Kim and Tom and Mago and so many others I could have mentioned. God, I thank you for the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas to not accept glory that was yours, but to know who they were and who you were. God, I pray that you would help us pursue humility in a world of pride, that we would acknowledge our weakness and our need for you that we would acknowledge that we're no better than those that we live next to or across town from us or around the world. But that God, as we find you in humility, that you would enable us to be your messengers and to proclaim your love to a world in need. It's in your name we pray.